Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 10th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel rejected provisions of a third-party settlement agreement that had not been approved by a workers' compensation judge. In this case, Miguel Pina suffered severe industrial injuries while working for Aqua Systems in an automobile accident. Pina filed both an application for adjudication of claim and a civil lawsuit against Larry Hahn, the driver of the other vehicle, and his employer specialty his employer, Specialty Construction. Pina reached a third-party settlement with the insurance carriers in the third-party case for nearly $998,000. The workers' compensation carrier agreed to waive its subrogation recovery of about $214,000. However, it was stipulated that the carrier could claim credit against future workers' compensation benefits in the amount of $447,000. Next, the applicant proceeded to trial of the workers' comp case, and the party stipulated that injury caused 100% permanent disability without apportionment, generating a payment of the $907.69 per week benefit starting February 3, 2018. The settlement and agreement as to the third-party credit was received into evidence at the work comp trial. It said that the industrial carrier shall be entitled to an immediate award of credit against future benefits, including permanent disability benefits. But Mr. Pena's attorney requested a 15% attorney fee commuted off the far end of the award and he submitted a declaration that said he was never consulted, considered, or notified of the third-party settlement in this case, nor did his signature appear on that document. Thus, he contended that he was not bound by the stipulated agreement to immediately apply the $474,000 third-party credit against his attorney fee, since he was not a party to the agreement, and he is entitled to have his fee commuted from the far end of the award. The work comp judge awarded permanent disability as stipulated less a 15% attorney fee without commutation, with the defendant entitled to a credit for amounts previously paid against the permanent disability and the attorney fees. And then it provided, upon exhaustion of all credit, applicants' counsel has leave to request commutation of any remaining fee on future benefits. Pena's attorney petitioned for reconsideration, which the WCAB panel granted in the panel decision of Pena versus Aqua Systems. It noted a line of cases and labor code provisions that provide that contracts such as releases purporting to exempt employers from liability for workers' comp benefits are prohibitive, prohibited, and presumptively invalid unless and until the work comp judge determines that they meet the requisite criteria for approval. Following this reasoning, the panel went on to say the stipulation to credit purports to release applicants' right to future workers' comp benefits, 
and is therefore presumptively invalid unless and until the work comp judge inquires into its fairness and adequacy and determines that it meets the criteria for approval. And inasmuch as the stipulation to credit in this case does not appear to be duly executed by the proper persons, meaning applicant's attorney, it fails to meet minimum statutory requirements for establishing the prerequisite fairness of adequacy for approval. And it is long settled law that an applicant's attorney's appearance in matters is tantamount to the filing of a lien claim because it puts the defendant on notice that a fee will be claimed. Notwithstanding that, it was on notice of the lien for attorney fees, the defendant made no attempt to secure the applicant's attorney's agreement for the lien to be subject to an immediate award of credit. Accordingly, the panel rescinded the findings and award and substituted findings that defendant is entitled to a third-party credit of $474,700.79 that is not applicable to the attorney fee. And a published Court of Appeal decision required an employer to pay a worker's attorney a $280,000 fee after settling an unfettered rest break civil case for only $15,000. The employer in this case, excuse me, the employee in this case, Raquel Bentecourt, worked at Fleming Steakhouse and Wine Bar on Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles. She filed a civil action in 2016 alleging her employer regularly failed to give her full uninterrupted rest periods and that they wrongfully terminated her in retaliation for making internal complaints that the employer violated wage and hour and food safety laws. In the course of litigation, the parties agreed to a settlement in 2017 and the employer was to pay her $15,375 in full settlement of her claims for failure to provide meal and rest periods and failure to provide accurate itemized wage statements, among other problems. But the Labor Code mandates an award of reasonable attorney fees to the prevailing party in any action brought for the non-payment of wages. That's non-payment of wages if any party requests attorney fees at the initiation of the action. After substantial litigation over the award of attorney fees and costs, the trial court entered judgment in 2018, approving $280,794 and costs as attorney fees to her counsel. In May of 2020, the California Court of Appeals uh, reversed the award of these attorney fees, citing the 2012 California Supreme Court decision in Kirby v. Imus Fire Protection Incorporated, which concluded that an action brought only for failure to provide rest breaks or meal periods is not an action brought for the non-payment of wages, which requires the payment of an attorney fee. Then, while the Benecourt decision was pending further appeal to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court held otherwise in a companion case, the 2022 case of Duranjo versus Spectrum Specialty Services. 
In that case, the California Supreme Court concluded that extra pay for missed breaks constitutes wages that would meet the criteria for the award of an attorney fee. The Supreme Court therefore transferred this Bentecourt case back to the Court of Appeal with directions to reconsider its prior opinion in light of their decision in Naranjo. Accordingly, the Court of Appeal issued a new published opinion in Bentecourt v. OS Restaurant Services, which affirmed the trial court's award of attorney fees. And now our crime report. This week, 22 former Long Beach car wash workers finally got their paychecks after a five-year wage theft case progressed through the system. And thanks to a new law that took effect this year, the Labor Commissioner's Office recovered more than $282,000 for wage theft violations for the car wash workers. The investigation into Castle Car Wash in Long Beach began back in 2017 after receiving a referral from the Clean Car Wash campaign. This campaign says it fights to shed light on the exploitative car wash industry and those at the heart of these operations. Investigators found that some workers were forced to wait up to three hours before clocking in, while others were only paid for hours when they performed car wash duties and were asked to remain on site without pay when the car wash was not busy. This violated California labor law. Hence, in 2017, citations issued for wage theft violations that totaled nearly $371,000. Castle Car Wash appealed the citations, and then a finding issued by the hearing officer amended the total citations due to only $242,000. The car wash went on to pay a little over $54,000 against these citations, but eventually stopped making payments by 2020. Then, in 2021, a new law, SB 572, known as the Enforcement Lien Bill, added Labor Code Section 90.8, which went into effect on January 1, 2022. The new law authorized the Labor Commissioner to create a lien on real property to secure amounts due under any final citation findings or decision. Near the end of 2021, workers learned that the car wash was going to be sold and reported this to the Clean Car Wash Worker Center, which in turn informed the Labor Commissioner's Office. Under this new law, the Labor Commissioner's Office recorded a certificate of lien now that the enforcement lien bill went into effect. One month later, the Labor Commissioner received payment on the Classic Castle car wash citations. The Labor Commissioner went on to say that the new lien authority provides a practical tool to recover owed wages. It has simplified and expedited the process to get money that is rightfully theirs into the pockets of workers and their families. And in further criminal law, a former California lawyer, Matthew Elstein of Redondo Beach, has been sentenced to 37 months in prison after he pleaded guilty and admitted he lied to clients about winning cases and deceiving them with bogus documents 
some even with the forged signatures of judges. Attorney Elstein was a was licensed in California from December 1994 until the State Bar of California ordered him inactive in March of 2019. He had been formerly with the national law firm of Tressler LLP. In a tearful bid for clemency, Elstein told the judge that he understood the pain he had caused and said a degenerative condition of his frontal lobe may soon diminish his mental capacities. Then his lawyer told the judge that Elstein's medical condition contributed to his behavior spinning out of control. One of Elstein's victims spoke in court and said he will never salvage his reputation, which Elstein destroyed. The U.S. District Judge was not persuaded that his degenerative brain condition was either at the root of his criminal conduct or a reason not to send him to prison. Instead, the judge sentenced him to the prison term prosecutors had asked for. According to his plea agreement, Elstein engaged in a scheme to defraud his clients by claiming he obtained favorable legal resolutions for them when, in fact, the favorable resolutions have never been obtained. In many cases, Elstein never even initiated any legal action. Elstein also admitted to misappropriating funds by informing victims their fees were going into his client trust account, when in fact he directed them to deposit money into his personal bank account. For one example, in June 2016, Elstein falsely informed a corporate client that it had won a $52 million default judgment. He emailed the victim client a fake court order that contained a judge's forged signature. Elstein presented his clients with a fake settlement agreement between the client and the United States Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of California. It was not until the company reached out to that United States Attorney's Office to authenticate the settlement agreement that it was discovered that the agreement was a forgery. Elstein also admitted to fabricating depositions in a federal case pending in Washington State. Because these depositions were fake, no one appeared for them. But nonetheless, Elstein had a court stenographer present and made a formal record of the non-appearances. Elstein also billed his client for attending the fake depositions and his travel expenses to Seattle. Elstein also falsely told the victim that he had obtained a $4.25 million judgment in the victim's favor, and provided the victim with a fake court order containing the Ford's signature of a judge. When the victim traveled to Seattle to collect the judgment, he was informed by the court that no such case even existed. In total, Elstein's conduct resulted in losses of at least $358,000 to his victims. At the time of his sentencing, he was ordered to pay $254,000 in restitution. And in regulatory news, with hours left to either sign or veto a stack of bills before they automatically became law on the last day of September, Governor Newsom plowed through more than 150 bills that were left for his review. Now that the legislature year, legislative year has ended, here are some of the highlights of his decisions to approve or veto proposed law that affect California employers. 
After declaring that insurance fraud is rampant in the state, amounting to billions of dollars in damages annually, particularly within workers' compensation insurance, the legislature passed and the governor signed AB 1681. Existing law passed in 2010 empowers the insurance commissioner to convene investigative debriefings with insurance carriers as a tool to fight fraud. This new law authorizes self-insured employers, including public entities that are self-insured employers, and district attorneys to participate in these debriefings if they are convened, in these, excuse me, debriefings if they are convened. And AB 1751 was signed, and this extends the existing COVID-19 workers' compensation injury presumptions set to expire on January 1, 2023, until January 1, 2024, and added additional first responders who qualify for the presumption. Newsom also approved SB 1127, which makes changes to other workers' compensation injury presumptions. Under this new law, specified firefighters and peace officers who are claiming illness or injury related to cancer will have an increase in the number of compensable weeks for payment of temporary disability to 240 weeks without limitation as to the time from the date of injury. And under this new law, employers face higher penalties for a delay. If liability for an injury has been unreasonably rejected for specified claims of illness or injury, including hernia, heart trouble, pneumonia, or tuberculosis, among others, for a specified member of law enforcement or a specified first responder list, the amount of the new penalty will be five times the amount of the benefits unreasonably delayed due to the rejection of liability, limited to a penalty of no more than $50,000. The bill would apply this provision to all injuries without regard to whether the injury occurs before on or after the operative date of the bill. However, Governor Newsom vetoed AB 334, a proposed law that would have created a presumption of injury for skin cancer for peace officers and lifeguards. He also vetoed SB 284 that would expand the existing rebuttable presumption for PTSD injury to additional classes of active government employees involved in emergency services. And in the world of employment law, the governor approved AB 152 extending COVID-19 supplemental paid six leave through the end of 2022. It will also set up a program to provide grants of up to $50,000 to qualified small businesses to cover the cost incurred for these COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave or SPSL. This law takes effect immediately extending the SPSL, which was previously set to expire on September 30, 2022. Also approved is AB 1041, which expands the class of people for whom an employee may take family leave to care for to include a designated person. A designated person means any individual related by blood or whose association with the employee is equivalent to a family relationship and who is identified at the time the employee requests the leave. 
An employer is authorized to limit the employee to one designated person per 12-month period. And the governor approved AB 1601, which made some changes to the California Worker Adjustment and Retraining Act, also known as Cal Warren Act. The amended law authorizes the labor commissioner to enforce certain notice requirements concerning a mass layoff, relocation, or termination of employees, including call center employees. The bill would grant the labor commissioner the authority to investigate an alleged violation, order appropriate temporary relief to mitigate a violation pending, completion of a full investigation or hearing, and issue a citation in accordance with certain procedures. And the WCAB has issued a notice of public hearing for the adoption of remote health medical legal evaluation and amendments to regulations for scheduling appointments with a panel QME. The proposed adoption and amendments to the regulations include the time frame to schedule a medical legal evaluation by an additional 30 days, clarifies that the time frame for scheduling an evaluation is for both initial and subsequent evaluations, updates to allow for electronic service of documents, and provides flexibility if the parties agree so that an initial evaluation occur, can occur at any of office listed with the medical director. The proposal also provides for a QME or AME to reschedule an evaluation within 60 days of the date of the cancellation unless the parties agree beyond the 60 days. This provides a mechanism for remote health medical legal evaluations if specific criteria are met. The implementation of these regulations is anticipated to reduce delays by providing flexibility in examination location and in scheduling. But members of the public may attend the in-person public hearing and submit written public comments until the end of the day on Tuesday, November 15, 2022. Information on the public meeting or where to submit written comments are available on the DWC website. The WCARB has released its second quarter 2022 experience report, an update on California statewide insurer experience valued as of June 30, 2022. They say written premium declined sharply beginning in the second quarter of 2020 due to the economic downturn resulting from the pandemic, largely driven by continued insurer rate decreases offsetting any growth in employer payroll. The average charge rate for the first half of 2022 is 3% below 2021 and the lowest in decades. The projected loss ratio for 2021, including the cost of COVID-19 claims, is 6 points above that for 2020 and 12 points above that for 2019. Projected loss ratios have been growing steadily since 2016, mostly as a result of declining insurer rate levels. The projected combined ratio for 2021, including COVID-19 claims, is 8 points higher than in 2020 and 33 points higher than the low point in 2016. 
including, excluding, excuse me, excluding COVID-19 claims, the projected combined ratio for 2021 is 110%, and the projected ratio for 2020 is 100%, both of which are still higher than those of recent years. Combined ratios have been growing in California due to insurer rate decreases and a modest growth in average claim severities. Indemnity claims have been settling quicker through the first quarter of 2020, primarily driven by the reforms of SB 863 and SB 1160. But after bottoming out in 2021, average claim closing rates are beginning to increase in 2022. And CT claim rates were relatively consistent from 2016 through 2019. But preliminary data now shows a sharp increase in CT claim rates in 2020, likely driven by shifts in claim patterns during the pandemic period. The 2020 increase in CT claim rates is largest in industry sectors that had the largest job losses in 2020, suggesting an increase in post-termination claims. Projected total indemnity claim severity for 2021 excluding COVID-19 claims, is 1% below 2020, but 11% above 2017. And now our medical news. Two doctors have filed the first federal lawsuit to stop a new California law that they say shuts down doctors' free speech rights by restricting the medical advice they can give patients regarding COVID-19. The law was signed on Friday by Governor Gavin Newsom, and it authorizes the Medical Board of California to pursue professional sanctions and even license revocation against doctors who share information about COVID-19 that challenges the, quote, scientific consensus. The two doctors, Mark McDonald, a Los Angeles psychiatrist, and Jeff Barkey, an Orange County primary care physician, are represented by the Liberty Justice Center, a national nonprofit law firm dedicated to protecting Americans' constitutional rights. The case was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California against the Medical Board of California and Attorney General of California. The plaintiffs are asking for a preliminary injunction to protect their free speech rights as the case unfolds. Under the terms of the new law, Assembly Bill 2098, the medical board is authorized to punish doctors who share misinformation with their patients and then defines misinformation as anything that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. In his signing statement, Governor Newsom acknowledged that he was concerned about the chilling effect of legislation of legislating doctor-patient conversations. Nonetheless, he signed the new law because it was, as he put it, narrowly tailored to apply only to those egregious instances in which a licensee is acting with malicious intent or clearly deviating from the required standard of care while interacting directly with a patient under their care. Critics argue that the text of the measure does not spell out what constitutes an egregious instance, 
or what metrics will be used to determine malicious intent. A recent article on this new law by the Los Angeles Times notes that the new law was endorsed by the California Medical Association, which represents nearly 50,000 physicians throughout the state. But critics say they are worried that singling out a rapidly evolving and relatively new disease could have unintended harms. For months, patients have been able to obtain a minimum data set specified under data law and applications such as Apple Health records have already dramatically expanded patients' access to their medical information. But new rules taking effect this month open patients' access to a much wider swath of information, including medical images, doctor's notes, genetic data, and other details normally kept under lock and key by what was called blocking rules. Healthcare organizations must now give patients unfettered access to their full health records in digital format. This is the opposite of the situation previously in place before this rule took effect. Health systems, data networks, and the companies that sell electronic medical records determine how much data patients can access when and under what circumstances before this rule. And private data brokers made huge profits by amassing hundreds of millions of de-identified medical records and selling insights to drug companies, device makers, and insurers without patients' knowledge or consent. The new federal rules passed under the 21st Century Cures Act are designed to shift the balance of power to ensure that patients can not only get their data, but also choose who else to share it with. This is the jumping off point for a patient-mediated data economy that lets consumers and healthcare benefit from the fluidity they've had for decades in banking. They can move their information easily and electronically and link their accounts to new services and software applications. California's largest healthcare workers union is no stranger to taking its fight to the ballot, both statewide and locally. In the past five years, it has pitched to voters initiatives on issues ranging from staffing at dialysis clinics to price caps for specific health care providers. This election season, Service Employees International Union, United Health Workers West, is targeting the cities of Duarte and Inglewood. On November 8th, voters will decide whether to set a minimum wage requirement of $25 per hour for some of the lowest paid workers at private hospitals, integrated health systems, and dialysis clinics. These workers include patient care technicians, janitorial staff, food service workers, and aides, among others. Union leaders are betting that local wins this November could spur a larger statewide movement. Given California's shortage of health care workers, supporters say a pay bump may help. Opponents say these proposals are too narrow to make a difference and may instead backfire. 
Residents and a handful of other Southern California cities may have to make a decision on health care workers' wages in later elections. For example, city councils in Long Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Downey approved minimum wage hikes for health care workers at private facilities in their jurisdiction this summer. But an industry-backed campaign temporarily blocked these cities from implementing the ordinances after it collected enough signatures for a referendum. Those city councils must either repeal the ordinance or put the issue up to voters, likely in the 2024 elections. The Coalition of Hospitals and Clinics leading the opposition to the wage initiatives is calling the union's proposal deeply flawed and the pay rate arbitrary. The hospital lobby and health systems across the state have poured at least $17 million into campaigns to defeat these two measures, according to campaign filings in Inglewood and Duarte. SEIU, UHW Union, has allocated more than $1.2 million in support. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.